0: My mother died on a warm spring day. Two weeks previously, she'd been sitting on a low chair looking up at my cousins, Ben and Tom, waxing lyrical about a pair of tight white trousers she used to wear as a young teacher. They were marvellous, she told us, but they were hideously embarrassing when I had a sexual ooze. You could see everything! My cousins had screamed. My dad had put his head in his hands and I had rolled my eyes. My mother, as she always did, rocked backwards, cackling, absolutely delighted she'd been outrageous. Sexual ooze, she said again, with a determined wickedness. Oh, for a sexual ooze. I didn't know it, but it was to be the last time I saw my mother laugh. I was called home, summoned by a telephone message picked up during a lunch break. I was in a writer's room for a children's animation series and as everyone tucked into their sandwiches, laughing and exchanging light gossip, I took myself outside and stood on the pavement in London's Portland Place, staring up at a clear blue sky. You have to come home, my dad said, as soon as you can. I felt a dull dread. Brenda's cancer had returned 18 months previously, another lump in her breast. We had sat in a small consultant's room at the Royal Marsden, lined up on plastic chairs, backs to the wall, as if we were about to be given detentions. A man with salt-and-pepper hair and his sleeves rolled up came in and told us the cancer was back. This time, there was no fixing it. I reached for my mother's hand, and neither of us said anything. The following months were no fun for my mother. She lost her hair developed debilitating lymphedema a build-up of fluid in the soft body tissue of her left arm and lost all interest in living it was a terrible sad withering of the most vital person i've ever known brenda was not the dying kind i wasn't quite sure what to do i was contracted to work for the rest of the day and i was with people i didn't know well i was shell-shocked anxious and heavy unable to tell anyone what had just happened. So I sat in that writer's room and tried to contribute, but my heart was sinking. I had to go home, and I had to do it now. But you don't stand up in a room of relative strangers and say, sorry, my mother's dying, I have to go. So I lied and said I was leaving for a voiceover I'd forgotten about. Everyone, I'm sure, thought I was awful. When I arrived home, I was greeted by my father, who burst into tears. He ushered me into the sitting room where we stood in front of a large mirror, as he told me to expect the worst. She was upstairs, he told me, had deteriorated. This was it. We held each other. I caught a glimpse of our reflection, broken, holding each other up. It was one thing to feel it. I didn't need to see it. Before I went upstairs to see her, Brenda had asked my father to show me something. It was a DVD from one of my uncles. He'd found some footage of my parents' wedding day and had sent it off to a place that converts old film reels. Now it was in my father's hand, a silver disc with the past on it. He put it on. It was 1966. England was about to win the World Cup and my mother was in a mini-dress run up the day before by my dad's sister. She looked like Julie Christie. My dad looked like he couldn't believe his luck. His sleeves shoved up beyond his elbows ready for business, and a grin so wide it could have torn his face in two. They were in the back garden of a miner's terraced cottage in Wales. A string of washing flapped behind them. They were laughing and dancing and smiling at the camera their whole lives ahead of them. And here we were, watching it with leaden hearts. I cried, then pulled myself together. I had to go upstairs.